Book One, Chapter Nine, Part One of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book One, Alison Device. Chapter Nine. THE TWO PORTRAITS IN THE BANQUETING HALL PART One. The banqueting hall lay immediately under the long gallery, corresponding with it in all but height, and though in this respect it fell somewhat short of the magnificent upper room, it was quite lofty enough to admit of a gallery of its own, for spectators and minstrels. Great pains had been taken in decorating the hall for the occasion. Between the forest of stag's horns that branched from the gallery rails were hung rich carpets, intermixed with garlands of flowers, and banners painted with the arms of the Asherton family were suspended from the corners. Over the fireplace, where, despite the advanced season, a pile of turf and wood was burning, were hung two panoplies of arms, and above them, on a bracket, was set a complete suit of mail, once belonging to Richard Asherton, the first possessor of the mansion. On the opposite wall hung two remarkable portraits, the one representing a religious votress in a loose robe of black with wide sleeves, holding a rosary and missal in her hand, and having her brow and neck entirely concealed by the wimple in which her head and shoulders were enveloped. Such as her features, as could be seen, were of extraordinary loveliness, though of a voluptuous character, the eyes being dark and languishing, and shaded by long lashes, and the lips carnation-hued and full. This was the fair votress, Isolde de Heaton, who brought such scandal on the abbey in the reign of Henry the Sixth. The other portrait was that of an abbot, in the white gown and scapulary of the Cistercian order. The countenance was proud and stern, but tinctured with melancholy. In a small shield at one corner the arms were blazoned. Argent, a fess between three mullets, sable, pierced of the field, a crescent for difference, proving it to be the portrait of John Paslew. Both pictures had been found in the abbot's lodgings, when taken possession of by Richard Asherton, but they owed their present position to his descendant, Sir Ralph, who, discovering them in an out-of-the-way closet, where they had been cast aside, and struck with their extraordinary merit, hung them up as above stated. The long oaken table, usually standing in the middle of the hall, had been removed to one side, to allow free scope for dancing and other pastimes, but it was still devoted to hospitable uses, being covered with trenchers and drinking-cups, and spread for a substantial repast. Near it stood two carvers with aprons round their waists, brandishing long knives, while the other yeomen of the kitchen and cellar were at hand to keep the trenchers well supplied, and the cups filled with strong ale, or braggit, as might suit the tastes of the guests. Nor were these the only festive preparations. The upper part of the hall was reserved for Sir Ralph's immediate friends, and here, on a slightly raised elevation, stood a cross-table, spread for a goodly supper, the snowy napery being ornamented with wreaths and ropes of flowers, and shining with costly vessels. At the lower end of the room, beneath the gallery, which it served to support, was a Gothic screen, embellishing an open armoury, which made a goodly display of silver plates and flagons. 
Through one of the doorways contrived in this screen, the Mayday revellers were ushered into the hall by old Adam Whitworth, the white-headed steward. "'I pray you be seated, good masters, and you too, comely dames,' said Adam, leading them to the table, and assigning each a place with his wand. "'Fall to, and spare not, for it is my honoured master's desire you should sup well. You will find that venison pasty worth a trial, and the baked red deer in the centre of the table is a noble dish. The fellow to it was served at Sir Ralph's own table for dinner, and was pronounced excellent.' I pray you try it, masters. Here, Ned Scargill, mind your office, good fellow, and break me that deer. And you, Paul Pimlot, exercise your craft on the venison pasty. And as trencher after trencher was rapidly filled by the two carvers, who demeaned themselves in their tasks like men acquainted with the powers of rustic appetite, the old steward addressed himself to the dames. What can I do for you, fair mistresses? he said. "'Here be sack-bosses, junkets and cream, for such as like them, "'French puffs and Italian puddings, right good I warrant you, "'and especially admired by my honourable good lady. "'Indeed I am not sure she hath not lent a hand herself in the preparation. "'Then here be fritters in the court fashion, "'made with curds of sack, posset, eggs and ale, "'and seasoned with nutmeg and pepper. "'You will taste them, I am sure, for they are favourites for our sovereign lady the Queen.' "'Here, Gregory Dixon, bestir yourselves, knaves, and pour forth a cup of sack for each of these dames. "'As you drink, mistresses, neglect not the health of our honourable good master Sir Ralph and his lady. "'It is well, it is well. I will convey to them both your dutiful good wishes. "'But I must see all your wants supplied. Good dame Openshaw, you have naught before you. "'Be prevailed upon to taste these dropped raisins or fond pudding.' "'And you too, sweet Dame Tetlow. "'Squire Nicholas gave me special caution to take care of you, "'but the injunction is unneeded, as I should have done so without it. "'Another cup of canary to Dame Tetlow, Gregory? "'Fill to the brim, knave, to the very brim? "'To the health of Squire Nicholas,' he added, in a low tone, "'as he handed the brimming goblet to the blushing dame. "'And be sure and tell him, if he questions you, "'that I obeyed his behests to the best of my ability. "'I pray you taste this pippin jelly, dame. "'It has red as rubies, but not so red as your lips, "'or some leech of almonds, which, lily-white though it be, "'is not to be compared with the teeth that shall touch it.' Oh, it's hard, Mr. Steward. "'He must have learnt that pretty speech for the squire himself,' "'replied Dame Tetlow, laughing.' "'It may be the recollection of something said to me by him, "'brought to mind by your presence,' replied Adam Whitworth gallantly. "'If I can serve you in aught else, sign to me, dame. "'Now, Nays, we'll look up, ale or break it at your pleasure, masters. "'Drink and stint not, and you will the better please your liberal entertainer and my honoured master.' "'Thus exhorted, the guest set seriously to work "'to fulfil the hospitable intentions of the provider of the feast. "'Cups flowed fast and freely, "'and ere long little was left of the venison pasty but the outer crust, "'and nothing more than a few fragments of the baked red deer. "'The lighter articles then came in for a share of attention, "'and salmon from the ribble, jack, trout and eels from the hodder and calder, "'boiled, broiled, stewed and pickled, and of delicious flavour were discussed with infinite relish. Puddings and pastry were left to more delicate stomachs, the solids only being in request with the men. 
Hitherto the demolition of the viands had given sufficient employment, but now the edge of appetite beginning to be dulled, tongues were unloosed and much merriment prevailed. More than eighty in number, the guests were dispersed without any regard to order, and thus the chief actors in the revel were scattered promiscuously about the table, diversifying it with their gay costumes. Robin Hood sat between two pretty female Morris dancers, whose partners had got to the other end of the table, while Ned Huddleston, the representative of Friar Tuck, was equally fortunate, having a buxom dame on either side of him, towards whom he distributed his favours with singular impartiality. As porter to the abbey, Ned made himself at home, and, next to Adam Whitworth, was perhaps the most important personage present, continually roaring for ale and pledging the damsels around him. From the way he went on, it seemed highly probable he would be under the table before supper was over. But Ned Huddleston, like the burly priest whose gown he wore, had a stout bullet head, proof against all assaults of liquor, and the copious draughts he swallowed, instead of subduing him, only tended to make him more uproarious. Blessed also with lusty lungs, his shouts of laughter made the roof ring again. But if the strong liquor failed to make due impression upon him, the like cannot be said of Jack Roby, who, it will be remembered, took the part of the fool, and who, having drunk over much, mistook the hobby-horse for a real steed, and in an effort to bestride it, fell head foremost on the floor, and being found incapable of rising, was carried out to an adjoining room, and laid on a bench. This, however, was the only case of excess, for though the Sherwood foresters emptied their cups often enough to heighten their mirth, none of them seemed the worse for what they drank. Lawrence Blackrod, Mr. Parker's keeper, had fortunately got next to his old flame, Suki Worsley, while Phil Rawson, the forester, who enacted Will Scarlet, and Nancy Holt, between whom an equally tender feeling subsisted, had likewise got together. A little beyond them sat the gentleman usher and parish clerk, Samson Harrop, who, piquing himself on his good manners, drank very sparingly, and was content to sup on sweetmeats and a bowl of fleetings, as curds separated from whey are termed in this district. Tom the piper and his companion the taborer ate for the next week, but were somewhat more sparing in the matter of drink, their services as minstrels being required later on. Thus the various guests enjoyed themselves according to their bent, and universal hilarity prevailed. It would be strange indeed if it had been otherwise, for what with good cheer and the bright eyes around them, the rustics had attained a point of felicity not likely to be surpassed. Of the numerous assemblage, more than half were of the fairer sex, and of these the greater portion were young and good-looking, while in the case of the Morris dancers their natural charms were heightened by their fanciful attire. Before supper was half over, it became so dark that it was found necessary to illuminate the great lamp suspended from the centre of the roof, while other lights were set on the board, and two flaming torches placed in sockets on either side of the chimney-piece. Scarcely was this accomplished when the storm came on, much to the surprise of the weather-wise, who had not calculated upon such an occurrence, not having seen any indication whatever of it in the heavens. But all were too comfortably sheltered and too well employed to pay much attention to what was going on without, and unless, when a flash of lightning more than usually livid dazzled the gaze, or a peal of thunder more appalling than the rest broke overhead, no alarm was expressed, even by the women. 
To be sure, a little pretty trepidation was now and then evinced by the younger damsels, but even this was only done with the view of exacting attention on the part of their swains, and never failed in effect. The thunderstorm, therefore, instead of putting a stop to the general enjoyment, only tended to increase it. However, the last peal was loud enough to silence the most uproarious. The women turned pale, and the men looked at each other anxiously, listening to hear if any damage had been done. But as nothing transpired, their spirits revived. A few minutes afterwards, word was brought that the conventual church had been struck by a thunderbolt, but this was not regarded as a very serious disaster. The bearer of the intelligence was little Jennet, who said she had been caught in the ruins by the storm, and after being dreadfully frightened by the lightning, had seen a bolt strike the steeple, and heard some stones rattle down, after which she ran away. No one thought of inquiring what she had been doing there at the time, but room was made for her at the supper-table, next to Samson Harrop, while the good steward, patting her on the head, filled her a cup of canary with his own hand, and gave her some cakes to eat. "'I dunna see Alison,' observed the little girl, looking round the table after she had drunk the wine. "'Your sister is not here, Janet,' replied Adam Whitworth with a smile. "'She is too great a lady for us now. Since she came up with her ladyship from the green, she has been treated quite like one of the guests, and has been walking about the gardens and ruins all the afternoon with young Mistress Dorothy, who has taken quite a fancy to her. Indeed, for the matter of that, all the ladies seem to have taken a fancy to her, and she is now closeted with Mistress Nutter in her own room.' This was gall and wormwood to Janet. "'She'll be hard to please when she goes home again after playing the fine dame here,' pursued the steward. "'Then I hope she'll never come home again,' rejoined Janet spitefully. "'For we don't want fine dames in our poor cottage.' "'For my part, I do not wonder Alison pleases the gentlefolks,' observed Samson Harrop, "'since such pains have been taken with her manners and education. "'And I must say she does great credit to her instructor, "'who, for reasons unnecessary to mention, shall be nameless. "'I wish I could say the same for you, Janet, "'but though you are not deficient in ability, "'you've no perseverance or pleasure in study.' "'I knows as much as I care to know.' "'replied Janet, "'and more than you can teach me, Mr. Harrop. "'Why is Alison always to be thrown in my teeth?' "'Because she is the best model you can have,' rejoined Samson. "'If I'd my own way with you, lass, I'd mend your tempers and manners. "'But you come from an ill stock, you saucy hussy.' "'I come from the same stock as Alison, anyhow,' said Janet. "'Unluckily, that cannot be denied,' replied Samson. "'But you're as different from her as light from darkness.' Janet eyed him bitterly, and then rose from the table. "'And go.' "'No, no, sit down,' interposed the good-natured steward. "'The dancing and pastimes will begin presently, and you will see your sister. She will come down with the ladies.' "'That's the very reason she wants to go,' said Samson Harrop. The spiteful little creature cannot bear to see her sister better treated than herself. Go your ways, then. It's the best thing you can do. Alison would blush to see you here. Then I'd stay and vex her, replied Janet sharply. But I wouldn't sit next to you any longer, Mr. Samson Arab. Call yourself a gentleman usher, but who are not a gentleman at all. I don't like it. 
but may the parish clerk and schoolmaster and the poor schoolmaster to boot and go and sit by Suki worsley and nancy Ault, whom i see yonder you shall do much master harrop said the steward laughing as the little girl walked away i should count it a disgrace to bandy words with the like of her adam rejoined the clerk angrily but i am greatly out in my reckoning if she does not make a second mother demdike and worse could not well befall her jennet's society could have been well dispensed with by her two friends but she would not be taken off on the contrary finding herself in the way she only determined the more pertinaciously to remain and began to exercise all her powers of teasing which have been described as considerable and which on this occasion proved eminently successful and the worst of it was there was no crushing the plaguy little insect any effort made to catch her only resulted in an escape on her part and a new charge on some undefended quarter with sharper stinging and more intolerable buzzing than ever out of all patience suki worsley at last exclaimed i should like to see you swum crosswise in the cold of jennet as nance redfern were this afternoon maybe you would suki replied the little girl but i am no so likely to be tried that way as yourself lass and if i was swum i should sink while you with your broad back and shoulders would be sure to float and then you'll be counted a witch either not suki said blackrod unable to resist a laugh though the poor girl was greatly discomfited by this personal allusion you may have a broad back of your own and the broad of the better to my mind but my word on't you'll never be tamed for a witch you're far too comely this assurance was a balm to poor suki's wounded pride and she replied with a well-pleased smile i hope i dunna look like one lorry not a bit lass said blackrod lifting a huge ale-cup to his lips your health sweetheart what think you then o nance redfern observed jennet is she no comely ay comelier far than fat fubsy suki here eh? or than nancy Holt with her yellow hair and freckled face and yet you call her a witch i call thee one thou few little wean and the daughter and granddaughter of one that's more cried nancy freckles of your own face you mismannered minx nay heeder nance said phil rawson putting his arm round the angry damsel's waist and drawing her gently down every one to his taste and freckles and yellow are so to mine so dunna fret about it and spoil your pretty lips with pouting better our freckles o your face than spots o your heart like that ill-favoured little lussy oh dunna offend her phil said nancy holt noticing with alarm the malignant look fixed upon her lover by jennet she's dangerous ferrup's tecker replied phil rawson but who the do's that i didn't notice him afore and he's no one of our party the latter observation was occasioned by the entrance of a tall personage in the garb of a cistercian monk who issued from one of the doorways in the screen and glided towards the upper table attracting general attention and misgiving as he proceeded his countenance was cadaverous his lips livid and his eyes black and deeply sunken in their sockets with a bistre-coloured circle around them his frame was meagre and bony what remained of hair on his head was raven black but either he was bald on the crown or carried his attention to costume so far as to adopt the priestly tonsure his forehead was lofty and sallow and seemed stamped like his features with profound gloom 
His garments were faded and mouldering, and materially contributed to his ghostly appearance. "'Who is it?' cried Suki and Nance together. But no one could answer the question. "'He doesn't look like being of this world,' observed Blackrod, gaping with alarm, for the stout keeper was easily assailable on the side of superstition. "'And there's a mouldy air about him that gives one the shivers to see. I've often heard say the Abbey is haunted.' "'And that pale-faced chap looks like one of the old monks risen from his grave to join our revel.' "'And see, he looks this way,' cried Phil Rawson. "'Oh, what flaming iron! They make that very flesh crawl of one's bones.' "'Is it a ghost, Lorry?' said Suki, drawing nearer to the stalwart keeper. "'By the masking, that's a con to tell,' replied Black Rod. "'But whatever it is, I'll protect you. Take care of me, Phil.' ejaculated Nancy Holt, pressing close to her lover's side. "'Ah, that I will,' rejoined the forester. "'I don't care for ghosts so long as you're near me, Phil,' said Nance tenderly. "'Then I'll never leave you, Nance,' replied Phil. "'Ghost or not,' said Janet, who had been occupied in regarding the newcomer attentively, "'I'm going to speak to it. I'm there feared if you are.' "'Ah, do, Janet, there's a brave little lass.' said Black Rod, glad to be rid of her in any way. "'Stay!' cried Adam Whitworth, coming up at the moment, and overhearing what was said. "'You must not go near the gentleman. I will not have him molested, or even spoken with, till Sir Ralph appears.' Meanwhile the stranger, without returning the glances fixed upon him, or deigning to notice any of the company, pursued his way, and sat down in a chair at the upper table. But his entrance had been witnessed by others besides the rustic guests and servitors. Nicholas and Richard Asherton chanced to be in the gallery at the time, and, greatly struck by the singularity of his appearance, immediately descended to make inquiries respecting him. As they appeared below, the old steward advanced to meet them. "'Who the devil have ye got there, Adam?' asked the squire. "'It passeth me almost to tell you, Master Nicholas.' replied the steward, and not knowing whether the gentleman be invited or not, I am fain to wait Sir Ralph's pleasure in regard to him. "'Have you no notion who he is?' inquired Richard. "'All I know about him may be soon told, Master Richard,' replied Adam. "'He is a stranger in these parts, and hath very recently taken up his abode in Withrow Hall, which has been abandoned of late years, as you know, and suffered to go to decay.' Some few months ago an aged couple from Colne, named Hewitt, took possession of parts of the hall, and was suffered to remain there. The old catty Hewitt, or Mouldy Heels, as she's familiarly termed by the common folk, is no very good repute hereabouts, and was driven, it is said, from Colne, owing to her practices as a witch. Be that as it may, soon after these Hewitts were settled at Wiswell, comes this stranger, and fixes himself in another part of the hall. How he lives no one can tell, but it is said he rambles all night long, like a troubled spirit, about the deserted rooms, attended by Mother Moldheels, while in the daytime he is never seen. "'Can he be of sound mind?' asked Richard. "'Hardly so, I should think, Master Richard,' replied the steward. "'As to who he may be, there are many opinions.' and some of her he is Francis Paslew, grandson of Francis, brother to the abbot, 
and being a Jesuit priest, for you know the past lose of all strictly adhered to the old faith, and that is why they have fled the country and abandoned their residence. He is obliged to keep himself concealed. Hmm. If such be the case, he must be crazy indeed to venture here, observed Nicholas, and yet I am half inclined to credit the report. Look at him, Dick, he's the very image of the old abbot. Yon portrait might have been painted for him, said Richard, gazing at the picture on the wall, and from him to the monk as he spoke. The very same garb, too. There is an old monastic robe upstairs in the closet adjoining the room occupied by Mistress Nutter, observed the steward, said to be the garment in which Abbot Paslew suffered death. Some stains are upon it, supposed to be the blood of the wizard Demdike, who perished in an extraordinary manner on the same day. I have seen it, cried Nicholas, and the monk's habit looks precisely like it. If my eyes deceive me not, is stained in the same manner. I saw the spots plainly on the breast, cried Richard. How can he have procured the robe? Heaven only knows, replied the old steward. It is a very strange occurrence. I will go and question him, said Richard. So saying, he proceeded to the upper table, accompanied by Nicholas. As they drew near, the stranger arose, and fixed a grim look upon Richard, who was a little in advance. "'It's the abbot's ghost!' cried Nicholas, stopping and detaining his cousin. "'You shall not address it!' During the contention that ensued, the monk glided towards a side door at the upper end of the hall, and passed through it. So general was the consternation that no one attempted to stay him, nor would any one follow to see whither he went. Released at length from the strong grasp of the squire, Richard rushed forth, and not returning, Nicholas, after the lapse of a few minutes, went in search of him, but came back presently, and told the old steward he could neither find him nor the monk. "'Master Richard will be back anon, I dare say, Annam,' he remarked. "'If not, I will make further search for him. But you had better not mention this mysterious occurrence to Sir Ralph. At all events, not until the festivities are over, and the ladies have retired, it might disturb him.' I fear the appearance of this monk bodes no good to our family, and what makes it worse is it is not the first ill omen that has befallen us to-day. Master Richard was unlucky enough to stand on Abbot Paslew's grave. <gasps> Merci, honest, that was unlucky indeed, cried Adam in great trepidation. Poor dear young gentleman, bid him take a special care of himself, good Master Nicholas. I noticed just now that yon fearsome monk regarded him more attentively than you. Bid him be careful, I conjure you, sir. But here comes my honoured master and his guests. Here, Gregory, Dickon, bestir yourselves, knaves, and serve supper at the upper table in a trice. Any apprehensions Nicholas might entertain for Richard were at this moment relieved, for as Sir Ralph and his guests came in at one door, the young man entered by another. He looked deathly pale. Nicholas put his finger to his lips in token of silence, a gesture which the other signified that he understood. Sir Ralph and his guests having taken their places at the table, an excellent and plentiful repast was speedily set before them, and if they did not do quite such ample justice to it as the hungry rustics at the lower board had done to the good things provided for them, the cook could not reasonably complain. No allusion whatever being made to the recent strange occurrence, the cheerfulness of the company was uninterrupted. 
but the noise in the lower part of the hall had in great measure subsided, partly out of respect to the host, and partly in consequence of the alarm occasioned by the supposed supernatural visitation. Richard continued silent and preoccupied, and neither ate nor drank. But Nicholas, appearing to think that his courage would be best sustained by an extra allowance of clary and sack, applied himself frequently to the goblet with that view, and ere long his spirits improved so wonderfully, and his natural boldness was so much increased, that he was ready to confront Abbot Pasley or any other abbot of them all, whatever they might chance to cross him. In this enterprising frame of mind he drew Richard aside, and questioned him as to what had taken place in his pursuit of the mysterious monk. "'You overtook him, Dick, of course,' he said and put it to him roundly why he came hither, and neither ghost nor Jesuit priest, whichever he may be, or wanted. What answered he, eh? Would I had been there to interrogate him. He should have declared how he became possessed of that old moth-eaten, blood-stained monkish gown, or I would have unfrocked him, even if he had proved to be a skeleton. But I interrupt you. You have not told me what occurred at the interview. There was no interview, replied Richard, gravely. "'No interview?' echoed Nicholas. "'Splod, man! <laughs> but I must be careful, for Dr. Omerod and Parson Dewhurst are within hearing, and may lecture me on the wantonness and profanity of swearing. By St. Gregory the Northbury! No, that's an oath, too, and what's worth a popish oath. But I have several tremendous imprecations at my tongue's end, but they shall not out. It's a sinful propensity, and must be controlled. In the word, then—' "'You let him escape, Dick.' "'If you were so anxious to stay him, I wonder you came not with me,' replied Richard. "'But you now hold very different language from what you used when I quitted the hall.' "'Ah, true, right, Dick,' replied Nicholas. "'My sentiments have undergone a wonderful change since then. "'I now regret having stopped you. "'By my troth, if I meet that confounded monk again, "'he shall give a good account of himself, I promise him.' "'But what said he to you, Dick? Make an end of your story.' "'I have not begun it yet,' replied Richard. "'But pay attention, and you shall hear what occurred. "'When I rushed forth, the monk had already gained the entrance hall. "'No one was within it at the time, all the serving-men being busied here with the feasting. "'I summoned him to stay, but he answered not, "'and still grimly regarding me, glided towards the outer door, which—' I know not by what chance, stood open, and passing through it, closed it upon me. This delayed me a moment, and when I got out, he had already descended the steps, and was moving towards the garden. It was bright moonlight, so I could see him distinctly, and mark this, Nicholas, the two great bloodhounds were running about at large in the courtyard, but they slunk off, as if alarmed at his appearance.' The monk had now gained the garden, and was shaping his course swiftly towards the ruined conventual church. Determined to overtake him, I quickened my pace, but he gained the old fane before me, and threaded the broken aisles with noiseless celerity. In the choir he paused and confronted me. When within a few yards of him I paused, arrested by his fixed and terrible gaze. Nicholas, his look froze my blood. I would have spoken, but I could not. My tongue clove to the roof of my mouth for very fear. Before I could shake off this apprehension, the figure raised its hand menacingly thrice, and passed into the lacy chapel. 
As soon as he was gone, my courage returned, and I followed. The little chapel was brilliantly illumined by the moon, but it was empty. I could only see the white monument of Sir Henry de Lacy glistening in the pale radiance. "'I must take a cup of wine after this horrific relation,' said Nicholas, replenishing his goblet. "'It has chilled my blood as the monk's icy gaze froze yours. Body o' me, but this is strange indeed.' "'Another oath, Lord help me. I shall never get rid of the infernal—I mean the evil—habit. Will you not pledge me, Dick?' The young man shook his head. "'You're wrong,' pursued Nicholas, "'that decidedly wrong. Wine gladdeneth the heart of man, and restoreth courage. A short while ago I was as downcast as you, melancholy as an owl, and timorous as a kid. But now I am resolute as an eagle, stout of heart, and cheerful of spirit, and all owing to a cup of wine. Try the remedy, Dick, and get rid of your gloom. You look like a death's head at a festival. What if you have stumbled on an ill-omened grave? What if you have been banned by a witch? What if you have stood face to face with the devil, or a ghost? Heed them not. Drink and set care at defiance, and— not to gainsay my own counsel, I shall fill my cup again, for in good sooth this is rare clary, Dick. In talking of wine, you should taste some of the wonderful Rhenish found in Abbot's cellar by our ancestor Richard Asherton. A century old, if it be a day, and yet cordial and corroborative as ever. These monks were lusty tipplers, Dick. I sometimes wish I'd been an abbot myself. I should have made a rare father, confessor. "'especially to a pretty penitent. "'Here, Gregory, hide out of the master cellarer "'and bid him fill me a goblet of old Rhenish, "'the wine from the abbot's cellar. "'Thou understandest? "'Oh, stay! Better bring the flask. "'I have a profound respect for this venerable bottle, "'and will pay my devoirs to it. "'I away, good fellow. "'You will drink too much if you go on thus,' remarked Richard. "'Not a drop.' rejoined Nicholas. I am as blithe as a lark, and would keep so. That's why I drink. But to return to our ghosts, since this place must be haunted, I would it were visited by spirits of a livelier kind than old Paslew. There's the sort of Eaton, for instance. The fair votaress would be the sort of ghost for me. I would not turn my back on her, but face her manfully. Look at her picture, Dick. Was ever countenance sweeter than hers?' "'Lips more tempting, or eyes more melting? "'Is she not adorable? "'Zounds!' he exclaimed, suddenly pausing and staring at the portrait. "'Would you believe it, Dick? "'The fairy soul winked at me. "'I swear she did. "'I mean, I will venture to affirm upon oath, if required, that she winked.' "'Sure!' exclaimed Richard. "'The fumes of the wine have mounted to your brain and disordered it. "'No such thing!' cried Nicholas, regarding the picture as steadily as he could. "'She's leering at me now. By the Queen of Paphos, another wink! Nay, if you doubt me, watch her well yourself. A pleasant adventure, this! <laughs> Druce to this drunken foolery!' cried Richard, moving away. "'Drunken? Sdeath! Recall that epithet, Dick!' cried Nicholas angrily. "'I'm no more drunk than yourself, you dog!' I can walk as steadily and see as plainly as you, and I will maintain it at the point of the sword, that the eyes of that picture have lovingly regarded me, nay, that they follow me now. A common delusion with a portrait, said Richard. 
they appear to follow me. But they do not wink at you as they do at me, said Nicholas. Neither do the lips break into smiles and display the pearly teeth beneath them, as occurs in my case. Grim old abbots frown on you, but fair though frail votaresses smile on me. <laughs> I'm the favoured mortal, Dick. Were it as you represent, Nicholas, replied Richard gravely, I should say, indeed, that some evil principle is at work to lure you through your passions to perdition. But I know they are all fancies engendered by your heated brain, which in your calmer moments you will discard, as I discard them now. If I have any weight with you, I counsel you to drink no more, or you will commit some mad foolery, of which you will be ashamed hereafter. The discreeter course would be to retire altogether, and for this you have ample excuse, as you will have to arise betimes to-morrow, to set out for Pendle Forest with Master Potts. "'Retire!' exclaimed Nicholas, bursting into a loud, contemptuous laugh. "'I like thy counsel, lad. Yet I will retire when I have finished the old monastic Rhenish which Gregory is bringing me. I will retire when I have danced the Morrises with the May Queen.' the cushion dance with Dame Tetler, and the brawl with the loveliest old Eton. Another wink, Dick, by her lady she assents to my proposition. When I've done all this, and somewhat more, it will be time to think of retiring. But I've the night before me, Dick, not to be spent in drowsy unconsciousness, as thou recommendest, but in active, pleasurable enjoyment. No man requires less sleep than I do.' "'Ordinarily I retire, as thou termest it, at ten, and rise with the sun. "'In summer I am abroad soon after three, and mend that if thou canst, Dick. "'Tonight I shall seek my couch about midnight, "'and yet I warrant me I shall be first stirring in the abbey, "'and in any case I shall be in the saddle before thee.' "'It may be,' replied Richard. "'But it was to preserve you from extravagance to-night "'that I volunteered advice, "'which from my knowledge of your character "'I might as well have withheld. "'But let me caution you on another point. "'Dance with Dame Tetlow, "'or any other dame you please. "'Dance with the fairy Solder Heaton, "'if you can prevail upon her to descend from her frame "'and give you her hand. "'But I object, most decidedly object, "'to your dancing with Alison Device.' "'Why so?' cried Nicholas. "'Why should I not dance with whom I please? "'And what right hast thou to forbid me, Alison? "'Troth, lad, art thou so ignorant of human nature "'as not to know that forbidden fruit is the sweetest? "'It hath ever been so since the fall. "'I am now only the more bent upon dancing with the prohibited damsel, "'but I'd fain know the principle on which thou erectest thyself into her guardian. "'Is it because she fainted when thy sword was crossed with that hot-headed fool Sir Thomas Metcalf, "'that thou flatterest thyself she's in love with thee? "'Be not too sure of it, Dick. "'Many a timid wench has swooned at the sight of a naked weapon. "'Without being enamoured of the swordsman, the fainting proves nothing. "'But grant she loves thee, what then? "'An end must be speedily come of it.' "'So better finish at once, before she can be entangled in a mesh "'from which she cannot be extracted without danger. "'For hark thee, Dick, whatever thou mayst think, "'I am not so far gone that I know not what I say. "'Neither is my vision so much obscured "'that I see not so matters plainly enough, "'and I understand thee and Alison well, and see through you both. "'This matter must go no further. "'It has gone too far already.' 
"'After to-night you must see her no more. "'I'm serious in this. "'Serious in popular, if such a thing can be. "'It's necessary to observe caution for reasons that will at once occur to thee. "'Thou canst not wed this girl. "'Then why trifle with her till her heart be broken?' "'Broken it shall never be by me,' cried Richard. "'But I tell you it will be broken if you do not desist at once.' rejoined Nicholas. I was but jesting when I said I would rob you of her in the Morisco, though it would be charity to both, and spare you many a pang hereafter, were I to put my threat into execution. However, I have a soft heart where aught of love is concerned, and having pointed out the risk you will incur, I shall leave you to follow your own devices, but for Alison's sake stop in time. You now speak soberly and sensibly enough, Nicholas, replied Richard, and I thank you heartily for your counsel, and if I do not follow it by withdrawing at once from a pursuit which may appear to you hopeless, if not dangerous, you will, I hope, give me credit for being actuated by worthy motives. I will at once and frankly admit that I love Alison, and loving her you may rest assured that I would sacrifice my life a thousand times rather than endanger her happiness, but there is a point in her history— with which, if you were acquainted, it might alter your view of the case. But this is not the season for its disclosure. Neither, I am bound to say, does the circumstance so materially alter the apparent posture of affairs as to remove all difficulty. On the contrary, it leaves an insurmountable obstacle behind it. "'Are you wise, then, in going on?' asked Nicholas. "'I know not,' answered Richard. "'But I feel as if I were the sport of fate.' "'Uncertain whither to turn for the best, I leave the disposition of my course to chance. But alas,' he added sadly, "'all seems to point out that this meeting with Alison will be my last.' "'Well, cheer up, lad,' said Nicholas. "'These afflictions are hard to bear, it's true, but somehow they're got over, just as if your horse should fling you in the midst of edge when you are making a flying leap. You get scratched and bruised.' "'but you scramble out, and in a day or two are on your legs again. "'Love breaks no bones, that's one comfort. "'When at your age I was desperately in love, "'not with Mistress Nicholas Asherton, heaven help the fond soul, "'but with, well, never mind with whom, "'but it was not a very prudent match, "'and so in my worldly wisdom I was obliged to cry off. "'A sad business it was. "'I thought I should have died of it, "'and I made quite sure that the devoted girl would die first in which case we were to occupy the same grave. But I was not driven to such a dire extremity, for before I had kept house a week, Jack Walker, the keeper of Downham, made his appearance in my room, and after telling me of the mischief done by a pair of otters in the Ribble, finding me in a very desponding state, ventured to inquire if I had heard the news. Expecting to hear the death of the girl, I prepared myself for an outburst of grief and resolved to give immediate directions for a double funeral. When he informed me, what do you think, Dick, that she was going to be married to himself? I recovered at once, and immediately went out to hunt the otters, and rest port we had. But here comes Gregory with the famous old Rhenish. Better take a cup, Dick. This is the best cure for the heartache, and for all other aches and grievances. Ah, glorious stuff! Miraculous wine! he added, smacking his lips with extraordinary satisfaction after a deep draught. "'Those worthy fathers were excellent judges. I have great reverence for them. 
"'But where can Alison be all this while? "'Supper's well nigh over, and the dancing and pastimes will commence anon, and yet she comes not.' "'She is here,' cried Richard. And as he spoke, Mistress Nutter and Alison entered the hall. Richard endeavoured to read in the young girl's countenance some intimation of what had passed between her and Mrs. Nutter, but he only remarked that she was paler than before, and had traces of anxiety about her. Mistress Nutter also looked gloomy and thoughtful, and there was nothing in the manner or deportment of either to lead to the conclusion that a discovery of relationship between them had taken place. As Alison moved on, her eyes met those of Richard, but the look was intercepted by Mistress Nutter, who instantly called off her daughter's attention to herself, and while the young man hesitated to join them, his sister came quickly up to him, and drew him away in another direction. Left to himself, Nicholas tossed off another cup of the miraculous Rhenish, which improved in flavour as he discussed it, and then, placing a chair opposite the portrait of Isolde Heaton, filled a bumper, and uttering the name of the fair votaress, drained it to her. This time he was quite certain he received a significant glance in return, and no one being near to contradict him, he went on indulging the idea of an amorous understanding between himself and the picture, till he had finished the bottle, and obtained as many ogles as he swallowed draughts of wine, upon which he arose and staggered off in search of Dame Tetlow. End of chapter 9, part 1